marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. Every state in the U.S. that has enacted a medical or recreational cannabis program, including Oregon, has faced what I call the green elephant in the room, the federal government. Cannabis is classified as a Schedule I substance, which means the federal government deems it highly addictive with no proven medical value. It shares this status with heroin and LSD. Not even cocaine or methamphetamine are considered Schedule I substances. This classification has had serious ramifications for the cannabis industry, banking issues, tax issues, and social inequity issues. This episode, I speak with a pioneer in the fight for federal cannabis reform, the co-founder of the Cannabis Caucus, representing Oregon's 3rd District, Congressman Earl Blumenauer. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin 6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. One of the impediments for states like Oregon to have a solid foundation to their cannabis industry is that the substance is still illegal at the federal level. One of the champions of federal cannabis reform is Oregon's Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Congressman, what led you to becoming an advocate for cannabis reform? This is a a cause that uh, I've been involved with literally since I was a child legislator in Oregon. And we were the first state to decriminalize cannabis. It was something that made no sense to me at the time. And the further I was able to explore the issue, the more I learned, the more outrageous it was. And certainly nothing in the ill-fated war on drugs made me feel any different. The more I learned, the more experience we've had, uh, the more important it seemed that we reform this failed policy. What constitutes a federal Schedule One substance classification, and why is cannabis on that list at the top level? That's a great question, because it's Schedule One, 
are supposed to be things that are highly addictive, have no therapeutic value. And we know that uh, cannabis doesn't meet that test. It's much less addictive, for example, than things that are legal, like alcohol and tobacco, for one. And it uh, has had a proven therapeutic benefit going back millennia. People have used cannabis to self-medicate for years. And more recently, there have been ample examples and evidence that it makes a big difference for individual cases to help with a whole range of problems. Speaking of problems, what problems has the federal classification caused to the states that have legalized cannabis, either medicinally, recreationally, or both? Well, uh, I have, as you may know, been successful in getting amendments to spending bills that prohibited the federal government from using resources to enforce it. We've had great success with that, mainly because people understand that there is no value in the federal government enforcing this failed policy. It is really uh, frustrating that we're continuing to arrest and cite people at the state and local level uh, by hundreds of thousands, 600,000 last year, for something that the majority of Americans think should be fully legal. It also causes issues like a lack of access to banking. There are research issues when it comes to the medical side because the federal government controls the research within the United States and the crops that are researched are nothing like the type of product that is being sold at dispensaries. Well, you're, you're correct. Uh, until recently, the federal government had such a tight grip on the type of marijuana that they would allow for research purposes just from one plantation in Mississippi and really bore no relationship to things that uh, Americans can buy on the street, uh, not just in the 37 states that have legalized something. We can get it in every state in the country. It has had problems. I mentioned 600,000 people being cited and arrested. Uh, some of the most egregious examples of police violence were from drug busts that went wrong. The federal prohibition has posed real problems to new emerging businesses. Part of what's exciting here is that this is an opportunity to be able to engage hundreds of thousands of people in a state legal market. But they've been denied full access, for instance, to banking service, which has been a huge impediment to small and emerging businesses, layering costs on them. It has hampered the research efforts. We basically have outsourced the cutting edge research to uh, Israel, to Great Britain, to Canada, when there are tremendous opportunities for product development. And frankly, there is an area here that allows us to correct the damage that was done by this failed war on drugs because the burden fell much more heavily on people of color, on low income, people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's highly unlikely that uh, middle-class whites uh, would run into the problems with the law. Not so, not so in terms of the application around the country. Across the board, it made no sense. It stifled the economic innovation and prohibited people who have paid the price to be part of 
this amazing emerging market. I mean, we're talking $20 billion. If it's not at that level, it will be very soon. Over 250,000 people employed in it. There are hundreds of millions of dollars of tax revenue, you know, over a billion in Oregon uh, very quickly, even though we're only 1% of the nation's population. And the revenues have been off the charts during the pandemic. It's been an unfortunate restriction in allowing this to be able to benefit the people who paid the price and be able to have state legal product in the hands of people who want it. When was the Cannabis Caucus formed? And what is being done now to reform those cannabis laws at the federal level? Well, uh, shortly after we had the states move forward, Colorado, Washington, followed by two years later, by Oregon and Alaska. We had a cannabis working group with men and women who are part of our staff on Capitol Hill. The members would meet occasionally. The staff met regularly, dealing with the legislation, its refinement, and moving it forward. Soon we realized that, hey, we've got a significant group of people who are working on it, and we formalized it into a bipartisan cannabis caucus. And we've been able to meet regularly to be able to advance these issues and be able to learn from one another, to be able to coordinate our efforts. One of the advantages of having a formal caucus is it allows the certified, smart, young people uh, who really run the place, the congressional staff, to be able to work collectively, cooperatively, uh, making progress on these legislative initiatives. And that leads me to the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, or what's known as the MORE Act. What is this, and what will it do if it passes? Well, the MORE Act is the best and most comprehensive piece of cannabis reform legislation. I've been working on this for years and had a number of elements that I was very proud of legislation that I advanced. But we were excited to work with Chairman Jerry Nadler, head of the Judiciary Committee, friend of mine who's also one of the co-chairs, Barbara Lee. We were able to put in the MORE Act elements that we think are critical for comprehensive reform. Being able to deal with criminal justice reform, being able to have expungement and resentencing for those still in custody. The marijuana justice provisions are amongst the most important. As I've mentioned, it is a travesty what happens today with law enforcement injecting itself into what is legal under state law. It's important to have immigration reform. Now, people who used cannabis perfectly legal in 37, 38 states are subject to deportation. In fact, people who use cannabis can be denied re-entry into the United States. I mean, it's just insane. And this is something that a number of people use. Medical cannabis is wildly popular and extraordinarily effective for a wide range of conditions, from PTSD to dealing with extreme nausea for chemotherapy patients. It's been something that has been widely recognized. People use it as part of their healthcare regime. And to have them run athwart the law really is sad. Uh, we've got elements in that to deal that 
juvenile protections, non-discrimination, dealing with prior convictions. You know, people can uh, be denied public housing, student loan benefits with a problem with a cannabis conviction, even though, as we know, this is overwhelmingly popular by more than two thirds of the American public. So these are elements in the MORE Act. It's a really delightfully comprehensive effort to deal with things we've heard about, but particularly dealing with issues of racial justice and being able to make the opportunities much more widely available. So what is the next step for it? Where does it go from here and what has to happen for it to become law? Well, the challenge that we have now is that for years, and we passed legislation through the House, including the Moore Act in the last Congress, and it stopped in the Senate. This was in no small measure because of the Senate Republican leadership centered in Mitch McConnell, was just adamantly opposed, even though it is popular in his own state. Indeed, uh, we got him around to uh, supporting hemp legalization when a lot of those former tobacco farmers realized that uh, there was money to be made growing hemp. But we've had no cooperation with the Senate leadership. When the Democrats assumed control in the Senate, that roadblock was removed. There has always been a slight majority in the Senate Uh, even under Republican control, that Mitch McConnell would stop it from moving forward. With the leadership of Mitch McConnell on the sideline, and we're talking about Chuck Schumer, who is the majority leader, that roadblock has been eliminated. And Chuck Schumer has evolved his stance. He earlier was uh, not, shall we say, an enthusiastic supporter. But Chuck, over the years, has worked on this issue, has learned more about it, and has developed Uh, as one of the strongest voices for reform in the Senate. And this Congress, he's been joined by two friends of mine, Cory Booker, with whom I've been working on cannabis reform and a whole host of other things, uh, animal welfare, uh, food reform, and our own Ron Wyden. Ron and I have co-sponsored reform legislation in the past, and Cory, Ron, and Schumer have emerged as the leaders for reform in the Senate. Part of the challenge we have is that they have now embraced kind of a sweeping vision, not unlike what we have with the Moore Act. They want to have those protections, for example, for minorities. They want to have less interference. They want to deal with the whole suite of issues. But they have not yet fashioned comprehensive reform legislation. We could have told them that that's not easy. There weren't a a number of staff members that were deeply involved. It's taken years working with the Judiciary Committee and others to be able to refine the Moore Act to meet these needs. The Senate is starting a step behind, and there's not entirely a consensus about how to move forward. So that process of developing the consensus and the path forward and the hard work of developing the actual legislation has actually slowed things down a little bit. For instance, we have sent repeatedly to the Senate legislation that would deal with the Safe Banking Act. One of the tremendous harms that we have now is that because you cannot easily get financial services, bank accounts, it's known that cannabis businesses are dealing largely in cash. It's recognized that they have 
safes full of cash. They take duffel bags and shopping bags full of $20 bills to pay their taxes. And we've seen in Oregon that people recognize that they are sitting ducks. There have been uh, well over 100 robberies. There was a fatal robbery uh, killing a worker in a dispensary. And this is happening across the country. So we've been working on the Safe Banking Act to at least get that out of the way, be able to clarify that they have access to the full range of financial services that will help them work better, will help them grow. It will make it easier, particularly for cannabis businesses that are women and minority owned. But there are some in the Senate that would rather hold that back and deal with more comprehensive approach earlier. Uh, I personally think we would be better off passing these increments of reform, particularly as it relates to safe banking, particularly as it would uh, relate to clarifying the status of veterans and cannabis for medical marijuana. So it's a good problem to have that people really want comprehensive reform and they're looking at the big picture. But there's been some impediments in being able to move smoothly making progress. I'm hopeful that in the course of this Congress, we can be able to get past that because it's just delightful to have the fact that the Senate leadership is no longer trying to deny reform. And the fact that they want broader reform is is kind of a nice problem to have, but it slows us down. On our first episode of this podcast, I spoke with Anthony Johnson, who was the chief petitioner for Measure 91. One of the things that he spoke of was due to a lack of banking and some of the taxation laws that local businesses face, that you're seeing Canadian companies come in and really start to take over a lion's share of the market here in Oregon. And without some of those reforms happening, you might not see Oregon. Oregonian-owned, let alone minority or women-owned businesses, because Canadians got there first. See, Canada allows their companies to deduct their business expenses, whereas you can't here because of the 280E law. So I understand why you would want to pass the Safe Banking Act first to maybe stabilize the industry. That's separate from the banking issue. The tax issue, 280E, dates back to the mid-1980s, where a drug dealer tried to deduct his yacht that he used for smuggling as a business expense. And so Congress made that illegal, but sadly, the way they drafted it also made it impossible to deduct ordinary business expenses for state legal cannabis. That's another separate issue that we want to resolve. The Moore Act uh, will correct that, but it is true that Canada is moving ahead of us. I mentioned the research in Israel as a lost opportunity for us. And you're seeing some of the larger Canadian firms move in. But we've been fighting to protect small and medium-sized enterprises in Oregon. We have a pretty diverse base right now. Some of them are pretty well established, but it's not certain that they're going to be able to survive if we're not able to put them on an equal footing. That's why I think there's a certain urgency to moving forward with the reform legislation, because we want to protect opportunities for small and medium-sized enterprises, for those that are minority and women-owned. It's only just that the people who paid the price ought to be able to have a part of this emerging market. 
you touched on the biggest issue that you previously had, which was Mitch McConnell, and it was a very political hurdle. Now, is your hurdle time? Do you believe that this is a when, not an if? Well, it's absolutely uh, a matter of when, not if. Uh, I have been working on this, as I mentioned, uh, since uh, I helped Oregon decriminalize in the 70s. I've been working on this in Congress. We've made year after year, we've made little incremental steps despite being faced with opposition from prior administrations. The Reagan just saying no. I mean, it started with Richard Nixon in a very cynical effort to weaponize cannabis against young people, young men of color in particular. It was purposeful. Nixon ignored the recommendation of his own Blue Ribbon Commission on cannabis. Ronald Reagan and Just Say No put countless billions of dollars into this failed war on drugs. Now, it failed because drugs are more readily available now than when they started, and they couldn't stop it in any state. In Jeff Sessions' Alabama, when he was attorney general and he had was on a crusade to make it hard, any junior high girl could buy a marijuana cigarette in about four and a half minutes. So this failed, but it had tremendous consequences. And we want to be able to help unpack some of that. And part of the problem is that there were massive sums of money that was spent by the federal government on this failed war on drugs. And we're talking about tens of billions of dollars. And there are elements of their restrictions that are embedded in statute. I mentioned one in terms of problems for public housing or student loans. So you have all of this woven into federal policy that's going to take some time to unwind. What is your ultimate vision for reform? If you had the ability to pass every bit of legislation that you could write, what does cannabis reform look like in the United States? I think it largely looks like the Moore Act. We want to deschedule it. There's no reason that it should be a Schedule One controlled substance. If we were starting the Controlled Substance Act over again, tobacco would be a Schedule One controlled substance because it's highly addictive and it kills people. Cannabis wouldn't be scheduled at all. Well, we're going to get to that point, I think, sooner rather than later, where there aren't these restrictions. I want to have a fair system of taxation so that they're not penalized with the 280E provision that they can't deduct their business expenses. I want them to be able to have the opportunity to pay their taxes with a check. I don't think that's too much to ask. And I want to open up the opportunities for research because we barely scratched the surface for the therapeutic effects, particularly for our veterans, but for PTSD, for traumatic brain injury, for neurological disorders, there are countless applications. And the more we get into it, the more we're going to learn and the more benefit we can give to the public. Last but not least, there are those who use it as adults, like they would use a beer after work or a cocktail. I personally don't use it. I don't know that I have any plans to do it, but I will tell you that if I or any member of my family had a condition that would benefit from medical marijuana, 
I would not hesitate for a moment. It's safe, it's effective, and it makes a big difference in terms of health and well-being. I just want to stop this failed war on drugs. I want to stop the racial injustice. I want to get people out of jail who would not have been in there in the first place. And I want to make sure that those who paid the price for the draconian enforcement are first in line to be able to share in the financial benefits of a legal market. It's pretty simple. Treat it like alcohol. If somebody's interested, based off this interview, to learn more about the work that you're doing on federal cannabis reform or the MORE Act, where can they go to get more information? We have a lot of information on our website. In fact, when I started the Cannabis Caucus, I wrote a report about a path forward for cannabis. It's on our website. They're welcome to contact us. There are any number of advocacy groups. You don't have to Google very long to be able to find citizen activists who are keenly interested in moving forward. We are in an era now where more and more people are getting engaged and involved. There are leaders in Oregon who have been part of not just the effort to uh, legalize cannabis, but you may have noticed that there's been legislation that the voters approved that decriminalized other Schedule One drugs treating people, not using law enforcement. We have approved a project in Oregon for psilocybin therapy, and we're in this two-year period. It's an exciting time for people to be able to examine these elements, deal with the advocacy groups, deal with offices like mine. We're happy to be a part of this to help us move forward. Last but not least, I think people should feel free to reach out to people in the Oregon cannabis industry. We have a number of people in Oregon who have been leaders nationally, not just in Oregon. They are successful in their entrepreneurial activities. They are some of the most powerful advocates for sensible drug policy. And I would urge people to do a little research on people in Oregon that are knowledgeable. My experience is that they're very free to share their ideas and their experience. Well, my goal is moving forward with this podcast to introduce many of those people to our audience. Congressman, thank you so much for your time today. I very much appreciate it. Happy to do it. I think you will have an inexhaustible supply of uh, homegrown talent uh, who will join you on this podcast to deal with various aspects of the failed war on drugs and how we fix it. Mainstream media. While the work continues to reform federal laws, the cannabis business still needs to run fairly, efficiently, and most of all, safely. In our next episode, we'll talk with the people responsible for regulating the cannabis industry in Oregon, the OLCC. I'm Travis Box. Thanks for listening to Mainstream Media on the COIN Podcast Network.